All right, flip to Exodus chapter 20 if you have your Bibles, and uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, both of those are the passages we have of the Ten Commandments. And we are closing out our series next week. I want to finish with a message on the law and the gospel to hopefully give kind of a clarification on that particular subject, because frankly, there's a lot of confusion on it in the Christian church today. So uh, hopefully that's something that'll be edifying to you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, let's read that and then then we'll pray. These are the words of God. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered here this evening on the Lord's Day for word and sacrament, fellowship, and edification. I ask that you help us to understand your words so that we might be challenged. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be holy and mature and wise. In Christ's name I pray, amen. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember me, uh, you might recall me mentioning the great stain on the church known as pietism, and I talked about the upper story of grace versus the lower story of nature and how the realm of the spiritual is the upstairs of the house and the realm of the physical is the lower story of the house, and some choose to spend all their time pondering from the lower house what goes on in the upper story of the house. And in doing so, they devalue or undervalue the lower part, the physical, the material. They, we call them pietists for, for a very specific reason. They elevate the perceived benefits of what is upstairs while ignoring what goes on in the world around them. And this looks like only caring about things like Bible reading, scripture, reading prayer, church attendance, all good and healthy things. But it also fails to see how the work that we do, our vocations, and so on and so forth, also serve the kingdom. So pietists will spend their time uh, basically being so, so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, is kind of one way of, of saying it. And when I'm sounding the alarm on this particular issue, I want to say that uh, most of the churches in our nation have succumbed to this belief, um, a high percentage probably upwards in the 90th to 95th percentile of churches uh, are stuck in this unfortunate mindset. But there's another aspect to pietism that is, of course, a major error. Pietists will insist that the law of God itself is meaningless to today because we live under grace, not law, something we'll talk about next week as we wrap it up. When talking with these folks, they will usually point to the Ten Commandments and they will say things like, well, there is no talk about the heart whatsoever in the Ten Commandments. It's just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There's no talk of the heart and we want the heart to be uh, there because we think it's important. So they look at the Ten Commandments, and of course, men like John Piper would say, well, no, we don't, I mean, yes, we're supposed to follow them, but no, they're not really applicable to today. And there's massive confusion on that sort of nonsensical teaching. Um, And they will say things like, well, that's just external observation. Um, Everybody does external observation to some degree or another. So, you know, why do we even need it? We can just, we know what's right and what's wrong and that sort of language. Uh, So external religious observance, right? Don't make idols, don't play cards on Sunday, don't steal, and don't date women who do those things. That's that's the exhortation. So 
pietists, they want the morality of the Ten Commandments without the obligation of the Ten Commandments. We, we know that we shouldn't do certain things, so we want the morality, but to say that we have to follow and obey the Ten Commandments, that just seems onerous. That seems like an incredible task. And especially as it applies to the issue of justice in the town square. It's my contention that pietism itself is wholly inept and wholly unbiblical. Not only is the system itself terrible, its conclusions are terrible. As we've said from the very beginning, the ten, the ten words were given to Israel in the context of redemption, of grace, of mercy. Father Yahweh rescued Israel from slavery and graciously gave them a new ordering of life. That's how we should view the Ten Commandments. This is a way to live now that you are free. The ten words were all about the heart of man. And the tenth word, forbidding covetous towards, covetousness towards one's neighbor, is the perfect ending to the ten words. And this is because it addresses the heart of man. And the pietists missed this particular point, of course. The tenth word, forbidding coveting, mirrors all of the rest of the commandments. Adultery begins in the heart when a man or woman covets someone he or she is not married to. Theft begins in the heart when a man or a woman covets the possessions of another. Murder, of course, is fueled by covetousness. The tenth word is the final word of the whole set of the commandments, which means it brings us back all the way around to the very first word. To covet that which is not yours is, as Paul says in Colossians 3.5, idolatry. This is a long list of things there in Colossians 3.5. Covetousness, which is idolatry. He calls it idolatry. And that idolatry brings us back to the first commandment, that we are not to put other gods before the face of Yahweh. So it's kind of like sort of a, a circle back to the first word, the first commandment. This tenth word prohibits covetousness and covetous behavior against one's neighbors and his possessions. Uh, we see it as an assault on the family, which is to be protected in the fifth word. That's kind of where we are tonight. So in a lot of ways, covetousness is what drives the violation of all the rest of the commandments, as we'll see shortly. Let's look at our text. Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, Deuteronomy 5.21 says the same, but there's a, a couple changes. See if you can pick up, pick up what they are. Deuteronomy 5.21, And you shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Did you catch the difference? In Exodus, the neighbor's house is listed first, and then the things associated with his house, his wife, his servants, his animals, and so on. In Deuteronomy, the wife is listed first, interestingly enough. And... His field, his field is also added to the list, which is not present in, in Exodus. Remember, uh, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to the next generation of Israelites who were prepared to go into the promised land. So Exodus is at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy is on the other side of the Jordan awaiting entry into the promised land with Joshua who was going to lead them in. 
So they were to receive their inheritance as God's firstborn rescued out of Egypt. Now, Deuteronomy emphasizes, this is sort of more my opinion, but I, I think I'm right. Deuteronomy emphasizes the importance of family by listing the wife first and the importance of private property by including the comment about the neighbor's field. So I think the second generation, for whatever reason, needed that exhortation and needed that particular nuance. I can't really prove it, but I think it's reasonable. The word covet from the Hebrew there, hamad, it means evil desire or taking inordinate pleasure in something that is not yours. We have two Greek, there's two words in the Greek language which essentially mean this insatiable desire and lust of getting the world. And then the other one refers to a love of the world, so kind of a different nuance. But covetousness goes hand in hand with lusting, a strong desire that encapsulates the entirety of one's existence in that moment. A covetous man or woman is a man who goes to great lengths to acquire something no matter the consequence. You know you are uh, coveting when you lust in your heart. The lust in your heart then gives birth to certain habits and actions, pornography or how you handle your money or a whole laundry list of things that could be present. The verb hamad also means to appropriate something, interestingly enough, to appropriate something or someone or an object or a person. It isn't simply the emotion of coveting that the law forbids. I think that's a misnomer. Usually the rest of the Ten Commandments is all about don't do these certain things. And then the tenth one is like, well, don't just emotionally want something that's not yours. It wouldn't be necessarily be wrong to desire to upgrade your vehicle because the one you're in is falling apart. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this appropriation or this attachment of something to yourself through illegal means. So it's not just that you want or you desire your neighbor's car, or your neighbor's wife, or his house, or so on and so forth. It's that you scheme and you plot and you besmirch him so that you may leverage the situation in order to gain those things. Erroneous machinations and misguided ruses are usually put into place in order to acquire something or someone. Essentially, coveting in this biblical context is manipulation for untoward gain. When Paul calls covetousness idolatry, he, he, I think he's referring to the interconnectedness between the tenth word and the first word, the tenth commandment and the first commandment. James says it like this, listen carefully. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, James might have said, well, you covet and cannot, cannot obtain, so you steal. Because usually when we think of covetousness, we're thinking of, I want what they have, so I'm going to steal it. Or, or we'll stop and just say, I want what they have. It, it's not, it wouldn't be wrong to say, wow, that, you know, I, uh, uh, Cody's not even in here, but I like his Yeti cooler, and I would love a nice Yeti cooler. Uh, Steve owes me one. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's not wrong to necessarily want, want that. Uh, but am I willing to manipulate Steve? You know, <laughs> it's not on his dime, clarification, okay? It's a work-related thing <laughs> to clarify. But if I were to sort of, 
you know, put my thumb on the scale or try to cook the books or whatever it is to get something that I really want. Now I've walked into the realm of coveting. So James could have said, well, you covet and you cannot abstain, obtain, so you, so you steal, but he didn't. And I think this is because coveting is something slightly different than just, I want something they have, so I'm going to take it. There's something a little bit different about it. Coveting emphasizes the intense longing for something your neighbor possesses. But it's not just that he wants to steal it. Rather, he wants to injure and deprive his neighbor. So the entire motive behind covetousness is this desire to clandestinely or secretly or surreptitiously enjoin himself to the affairs of his neighbor's household. So coveting, if it's to be coveting, requires quarreling and fighting. That's what James says, interestingly enough, because the only way to attach oneself to the other person or goods of, of the neighbor is to disrupt the family economy. I think that's why he says your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's uh, servants or slaves, in the, in the Hebrew is a more direct translation, uh, or your neighbor's field. Uh, I think it's, they're all family unit economics, and so covetousness tends to disrupt that. And, and we've already talked about this in the fifth word. Uh, the family is the unit for progeny and property, for having children and, and covenant dominion and so on and so forth. But also it's for private property and ownership. And that's a real, those are real concepts that God's law protects. Which is all to say uh, that the 10th word condemns the man uh, wholesale, essentially. All... He, it condemns the man whose, whose sole, all-encompassing focus is to defraud his neighbor or deceive his neighbor or coerce his neighbor in an attempt to acquire that which belongs to the neighbor. And it could be a man who tries to flirt and gains the, gain the wife's attention, basically by elevating himself and maybe demeaning the husband, talking at the fence. Oh, my husband, I complain about my husband. Yeah, he's pretty terrible. I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> Those, that's how those conversations go, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but it could be attempting to defraud the neighbor in business dealings. You know, it could be anything like that. It could Dishonest gain, fraud, underhandedness, all of it falls underneath the 10th word. And there's another aspect to this prohibition that goes on unchecked today, and that is having the state intervene to plunder the neighbor. Property tax is a violation of the 10th commandment. It is the forceful apprehending of our neighbor's money and land via the centralized state. Government schools violate all of the commandments, <laughs> but they especially violate this commandment. Plundering your neighbor to fund your child's education is, is theft, and more pointedly, it is covetousness. And this sort of plundering is especially egregious because of the lust for collectivism. And this is like the, the latest stuff, even with Loudoun County and all that was going on there. Parents who defend the government school system are warring against the Tenth Commandment. And they are literally substituting, and I, I had to double check this this week, they're literally substituting the Tenth Plank of the Communist Manifesto for and in place of the Tenth Word. Tenth, the Tenth Plank of the this is what Marx and Engels devised, the Communist Manifesto. The tenth plank is public schools, government schools. So isn't that funny that it's the tenth plank that 
supplants the Tenth Commandment. Covetousness, as we'll see shortly, is the opposite of contentment. So let's consider how we might apply this. In a lot of ways, uh, I'm not going to apologize for this, so, but a lot of, in a lot of ways, Christians today are, are just as pagan as the pagans. <laughs> and what I mean is, there is a root down there in all of this mess, and many churchgoers don't know that it's there. The root, of course, is this comprehensive faith for all of life that excludes a duality of life, meaning that we don't separate theology and philosophy. We don't separate the mind from the body. We don't, we don't separate the heart from the body. We don't separate the spiritual from the physical. In our worldview, there is no two-storied house. There's just the house, <laughs> and we're in it, and we have physical bodies, and we have spiritual bodies that are intertwined, and we don't know exactly where they meet or how they meet. No one can do surgery and find out you know, where your immune system is or where, your, where is your soul buried in all of this stuff. No one can do that, and that's because it's a unified existence that we hold together. We don't split it up. And the Tenth Commandment unites our thoughts and our actions, or our intentions and our actions, as it were. In God's economy, there is no not guilty for reasons of insanity, for example. Um, That's not a thing. It's a thing today, because we think we're being helpful in in our pursuit of quote-unquote justice, But again, that's a pagan idea. There is no not guilty for reasons of insanity. Regarding murder, we do account for things like accidental manslaughter. And uh, that's that's a good thing. But we we don't separate the mind and the body. We don't separate the physical and the spiritual. We don't say, well, he didn't mean to hurt the person that he tried to steal from. He didn't mean to. He was just trying to go in and rob the Yeti cooler. He didn't mean to punch him and hurt him, and now he's in the hospital. Okay, they didn't mean to. Nonsense. That's the type of that, that's the duality that we're talking about. We we don't say those things. This is what's called a Pelagian view of man. Pelagius was a heretic that um, Augustine, the church father, fought against in the fourth and fifth century. But this is a Pelagian view of man, and Pelagius held a view of man that was wrong. That man is always just essentially good. And that he can always choose good at any point in his life. And Augustine said, no, we're totally depraved. Right? We, we have sin, and it, sin affects everything. And far too many Christians... And by the way, when you have a Pelagian view of man, when you separate the man out like, like we do today, that is classic paganism, straight out of Greek philosophy. See, far too many Christians today who attend church be it by segregated health status, you got the vaxxed over here and the unvaxxed over here, or they attend online, which is a joke anyway, but far too many Christians who call themselves Christians and they walk into churches, they have a very dualistic view of the world. Today's misguided follow-your-heart Christianity. Just follow your heart. Isn't that nice? Put on a coffee mug. Maybe a t-shirt. Follow your heart. Straight to hell... Follow your heart. Christianity is pagan in its orientation because it rejects the doctrine of total depravity. Let me explain that. In Reformational theology, total depravity means that the totality of man's existence is tainted by sin. 
it's not our view in Reformed theology or what's called Calvinism. It's not that man is always as bad as he can possibly be all the time. It's not that. It's that all of man is affected by sin. His mind is affected by sin. His body, his soul, his heart, everything about him is affected by sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? The reason this doctrine comes into play here is because sinful men will always try to blame their sin on something external, something environmental. Right? The, who, how many have heard the devil made me do it? Right? That's like the classic. The devil made me do it. Really? He grabbed your hand and made you do that thing? Well, it wasn't my intention to do that. I didn't intend for that to happen. Well, I know you think I gossiped, but she deserves it. Or perhaps my favorite, well, it's not as bad as you make it sound. See, people will blame their parents for everything. My parents didn't do this or didn't get this right, and now I'm more righteous because I get it right. I mean, I do a lot of things different than my own parents today. Um, but, you know, that's, that's part of sanctification. That's part of growth. But don't blame everything on your, your parents or your upbringing. Don't, don't go, go the Freudian route. Don't, don't just blame your environment or blame these different things. Own your sin. Don't minimize your sin either. See, blame shifting is oftentimes our best recourse in order to assuage our guilty conscience. When Christians today say, follow your heart, that's what Christianity is, right? Follow your heart. When they say that, they outright reject the doctrine of total depravity and they elevate the emotional over against the objective. So rather than submit to the law of God, modern Christianity has rejected it and substituted its own version of law. Do unto self as you would do unto self. Driving a wedge between law and gospel, something we'll cover next week. Driving a wedge between the law of God and our confession of faith. Modern men detach themselves from any meaningful responsibility to his neighbor. And this sort of evangelifish Christianity has no backbone, and thus it cannot offer anything good to a watching world. The law of God puts a man together. The law of God puts all of us together. Our hearts and our minds, our bodies, our soul, it puts it all together the way it's supposed to be. And when you reject the law of God, the totality of man's being is rejected. Cardin, cardin off oneself from responsibility to the law of God, and here's what you get. Squishy, feel-good Christianity, which people today buy hook, line, and sinker. And the trail, the trail of destruction that pietism has left is nearly incalculable. When responsibility is forsaken, subjectivism takes over. Meaning, just to sort of apply it here, a little footnote, when you feel like you have no obligation to the destruction that's being wrought in our culture and you have no responsibility to do something about it, you have cardened off yourself, you have become a dualistic pagan, and you're no better than Plato himself. See, one of the things that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is restore what man has sought to put asunder, namely the unity of man's heart and his actions. 
I've said this a few times in this series, and it, but it is worth repeating, I should say. Um, it's worth repeating a lot. But Christianity puts the heart at the center of a man's being. Not the mind, the heart. The Enlightenment of about 500 years ago, 400 years ago, put the mind of man, to, man at the center. Cogito ergo sum, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And he, unbeknownst to himself, set off a chain reaction where the mind, the rational, what man could think became the center of his being and not the heart that is restored by the gospel. However, having putting, with the enlightenment, putting the mind of man at the center, total depravity tells us for all of man's brilliance, think of the Stephen Hawking's of the world, for all of man's brilliance, at the end of the day, an unregenerate heart is a polluted mind limited by man's sinful proclivities. And Christianity says that the Holy Spirit invades the heart, creates it anew, out of nothing. The same language, Genesis 1 talks about uh, this, this creation out of nothing. And uh, David in Psalm 51 says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And he, the, the verb he's using is out of nothing. Take this disheveled mess of a heart, this rocky heart, and destroy it and create something new inside of me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And he, and he himself restores our very being. Man's ontology is restored. Who we are is restored only when we repent and believe the gospel, only when the Holy Spirit invades our heart. And this is why Jesus tells us that murder with one's hands starts as anger in one's heart. Adultery starts with lustful hearts and lustful eyes. Matthew 15, 11 reads, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. So lawless, unregenerate men, along with lawless, pietistic Christians, will always seek to put the defiling somewhere other than the heart. Blame shifting. The devil made me do it. I didn't mean to do that. My intentions were pure. We drive a wedge between our heart and our actions, where Christianity says, no, there is no division there. The tenth word tells us that that is not so. Covenant keeping, if it is true to be true and faithful, covenant keeping must account for this reunification of man's being. It must account for actions that stem from a covetous heart, which is to say, merely having thoughts kept to yourself do, in fact, Place a burden on your neighbor. You can't separate it out. When asked to keep the law, Israel didn't respond to Moses saying, well, yes, we'll think about it and we'll believe it. That's the typical pietistic Christian response. Instead, when, when Moses had given the law to Israel and he said, this you must do, what did they say? They responded rather emphatically. They said, we will do them. We will do them. Not, we will think about it and ponder it from time to time. No, we will do them. We will do them. Commandments are meant to be done, not simply believed. Until modern Christians regain the biblical, this biblical perspective, the humanist social order around us will continue to become increasingly tyrannical. You want to know why tyranny is running amok? Why they're pushing so hard on vaccine mandates? Why they're pushing so hard on, on uh, 
messing the economy up with inflation and all these things. You want to know why they're doing it? <laughs> they're, they're doing it because we Christians for far too long thought the commandments were just supposed to be believed and not done. Consider the context of the giving of the ten words. Father Yahweh did not liberate his son so that he would give himself to idols, false religions, uh, violence, thievery, fornication, adultery, gossip, and discontentment. God didn't rescue us so that we would give ourselves to those things. He didn't crush Pharaoh's entire world with plagues so that his son would walk in the way of pagan nations. He didn't bring his son across the dry land, miraculously separating the waters of the Red Sea, crushing Pharaoh's army in one fell swoop when the waters came back on them, he didn't do all of that because, well, God wanted Israel to become a law unto themselves. No, Father, Father Yahweh rescued them, and he rescues us by his Son so that they could and we could live like him. Egypt wanted to remake Israel and thus the world into their own pagan image. Yahweh delivered his covenantally begotten Son in order to remake them into his perfect image. And as has been the case throughout this entire series, the negative aspect of the law, the, the thou shalt not, the do not do this stuff, also has a positive counterpart. For example, the prohibition of murder is a call to arms. Get your Glocks and your Smith & Wessons. The prohibition against murder is a call to arms and it's the, def the call to a defense of your neighbor, yourself, your family, your church, should the need arise. That's part of the thou shalt not murder. Get a gun and be trained and well prepared. The prohibition against adultery is a call to develop a healthy biblical trustee family. The prohibition against theft, thou shalt not steal, is a call to respect private property. And the prohibition against covetousness is a call to contentment. It is a demand from God to be settled in your soul with who God has made you to be and be settled with what it is that you have. Rather than jealously looking upon what others may possess, the tenth word tells us to look at God and be satisfied with our lot. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it best. He said, how many, how many people, how many to build up an estate, pull down their souls, Oh, therefore, flee from covetousness. Paul writes, we've already read it in Philippians 4, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I, know, I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The I can do all things part isn't you, you know, completing your triathlon. <laughs> the I can do all things part is connected to the previous part about being content in all circumstances. No matter, no matter Paul's material status, abundance, or suffering need, no matter what it was, contentment in Christ was foremost in the mind of Paul. And don't you dare write him off, by the way. We have an affluent society. We have wealth. Okay? A man like Paul who would travel the world to preach the gospel oftentimes may not have even had a meal in several days. 
We're talking about a man who learned how to be content with very, very little. That doesn't mean that we're called to just you know, sell everything and do the socialism thing. But it does mean that to whom much is given, much is required. Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 6, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world. Key, key thinking there. We act like we brought a lot of stuff into this world. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And here's the famous verse. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And some, by aspiring to have it, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What happens when your covetousness takes over your heart and you want more and more and more and more and more? You end up like Solomon in in Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity anyway. You're going to die and everything you gained is going to somebody else. And who knows if they're going to be wise or a fool, he says in Ecclesiastes 2. Who knows? See, a heart that rightly desires is a heart that is aligned with the grace and mercy of the law and the gospel of God. A rightly ordered heart leads to a rightly ordered life. And that is the intent of the giving of the Ten Commandments. So what must me do? What must we do now? We must cultivate contentment. Kids, you're not too little to cultivate contentment in your life. To be content with what you have with where God has placed you, with the parents you have, with the education that you're getting. Be content. Watson said it again. He said, If we are to content with our own, we shall not covet that which is in others. The way out of covetousness is by believing that in God's sovereign purposes, God is actively superintending your life. If you stop believing and trusting that God is sovereign and He's actively superintending your life, you will give yourself over immediately to covetousness. Because you'll stop trusting that He's taking care of you. You'll stop trusting that He has provisions in place for you. You'll start thinking, I need something else because God is not following up with His end of the deal here. Coveting does not start by by examining what your neighbor has. It starts by forgetting what God has given you. God graciously gave His law because He knows that sinful hearts are a snare to man's existence. Desire is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We all desire certain things. Desiring the wrong things as exhibited in the law are there as a safeguard to keep you from ruining your life. It's not the pietists are wrong. It's not that the law of God is onerous and burdensome and, and too difficult to sort out. It's a gracious gift to keep you from running into the street chasing a ball and getting hit by a car. Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Clearly, our hearts are given over to the chasing of some sort of treasure. The question is, what will that treasure be? When the Spirit writes the law on the heart, He ensures that we are enabled to hunger for the Lord's provisions. And one writer said that, it, that life is a treasure hunt. Life is a treasure hunt. We actively, we are always seeking out a place to lay our weary hearts down. We're always doing that. 
If the things that occupy our hearts are sinful violations of the law, we end up weighing our hearts down, attaching an anchor to them and sinking them to the depths of your soul, debilitating their capacity for love. But when our hearts are occupied by the things of righteousness and peace, guess what? They are lifted and they are set free. Let's pray. Father, you've been good and gracious to us because of your Son. And we come to you now asking for you to help us. Help us to obey your word. Help us to know and understand your word as well. Lord, we want nothing more than to see you exalted, not only in the throne of our hearts, but the throne of this nation. We want to see the Lord Jesus worshipped. So would you help us, strengthen us, guide us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.